Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. A phobia is an irrational fear of something that's unlikely to cause harm. The word itself comes from the Greek word phobos, which means fear or horror. Hydrophobia, for example, literally translates to fear of water. When someone has a phobia, they experience intense fear of a certain object or situation. Phobias are different than regular fears because they cause significant distress, possibly interfering with life at home, work or school. People with phobias actively avoid the phobic object or situation or endure with intense fear or anxiety. People suffer from so many kinds of fears. There's mysophobia, a fear of dirt. Nyclophobia, fear of darkness. Acrophobia, a fear of high places. Taxophobia, a fear of being buried alive. Xenophobia, a fear of strangers. Necrophobia, fear of the dead. Claustrophobia, fear of confined places. Triskaidekaphobia, a fear of the number 13. Hippopotamonstros escopedeliophobia is one of the longest words in the dictionary and it's ironically the fear of long words. Unfortunately, many people who have learned to fear things that they probably shouldn't haven't learned to fear God. Too few who have acrophobia, fear of heights, have never learned to fear God and to keep his commandments. Many of some of these fears give no notice to the words of Christ, who said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Many fear what man can do to them, but not what God will do at Judgment Day if they do not repent and turn to him in faith. As Christians, we know we should share our faith with others, and communicating our faith in Christ should be the most natural thing in the world. However, many people feel very intimidated at the thought of sharing the gospel with a stranger. What has caused this dilemma, and how do we overcome it? Hello, and welcome to our GCS podcast with author and evangelist Tony Anthony. Sometimes we forget that Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We often live as if the laborers are plentiful, but the harvest is few. Evangelism is a spiritual discipline, and we need to be intentional and deliberate in seeking ways to share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. But what do we need to do to prioritize evangelism, and how do we go about practicing it? Let's join Tony as he explores how we can pursue evangelism and missional living with joy and intentionality. Dr. Leighton Ford said, It is as we obey Christ's commands to evangelize that urgency and compassion come. Well, Leighton Ford is Vice President of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and Honorary Life Chairman of the Lausanne Committee for World Evangelization. He's addressed millions of people on every continent and received high recognition as a teacher, evangelist and author. He's a man who knows firsthand that the drive to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ increases as we obey Christ's commands. His assertion concerning urgency and compassion is one that I really recognise in myself and I challenge anyone to put it to the test. How often have I had people say to me something like, but Tony, I just don't feel the same passion for the loss as you. I can't help it. I just don't have the same drive to speak to others. It's obviously not my gifting. Well, a friend of mine recently started running 
and being rather unfit and a little overweight, she tentatively began a gentle training schedule along with a friend in a similar condition. Both women were reluctant athletes to say the least, but they committed to each other to get out three times a week for a 20-minute fast walk. It was tough at first, and my friend reports that it was only the commitments to one another that got them off the sofa some evenings. It wasn't long, however, before the fast walk was interspersed with periods of slow jogging. Soon after that, the women found they could do a whole circuit of slow jogging, which then progressed into periods of fast running. What's more, they found they were enjoying the time together and seeing remarkable benefits when it came to energy levels, fitness and also weight loss. The reluctance 20 minutes had now become something they looked forward to and they began setting challenges to run further, faster and longer. After a month or so of training, they entered their first five kilometre race and completed it in respectable time as well. I never thought I'd be able to call myself a proper runner, my friend reported. But as I crossed the finishing line with many other runners behind, I knew I really was one of them. The amazing thing now is I have a real need to run. It has really changed my life. I have much more energy and I look forward to getting out there and doing it. I'm thinking of working towards the marathon. Any athlete, musician or artist will testify that to get better, you've got to practice. And the more you do something, the more you're going to love it. That's my experience of evangelism. When I first became a Christian, I was so radically changed and so overflowing with joy that I couldn't help but share the good news of Jesus Christ. Yet as the years went by, and especially as I was now starting to go to church more often, my zeal and excitement began to really wane. Thankfully, it was replaced with deeper passion as I began to study the scriptures and learn more of what it truly means to be a follower of Christ. To that end, I made the conscious decision and commitment I talked about in previous sessions to obey Christ's commands no matter what and to equip myself with skill and resource to share the gospel with anyone, whenever and wherever I possibly can. Having taken those sorts of steps, I can wholeheartedly testify that my passion for the lost grows on a daily basis. The more I practice sharing the gospel, the more I love the gospel. You know, if you think about it, you don't learn to draw and then start drawing. You don't learn the piano and then, you know, once you've done that, you start playing the piano. No, the activity's perpetual, isn't it? From the moment you put pencil to paper or fingers on keys, you're drawing or you're playing. And usually the more accomplished you become at the arts, the more you love it and the more you do it. And similarly, the only way you're going to start to operate as an evangelist is to start evangelising. Just start doing it. Have a go. Make mistakes. Don't worry. And when you start evangelising, I'm fairly certain you'll find you get more of a heart for the lost. Experience teaches me that the more I love the gospel, the more I share the gospel, and the more I love Christ and what he's done to save me. The closer I come to Christ, you know, the more abundant joy I receive and the more I want to practice evangelism. So when people ask, why don't I share the same passion for the loss as you? My reply is simple. Try following Christ's commands in Mark 16, 15. Try practicing the Great Commission. I mean, is the war over for people who struggle in this way? Is the war over for you? No, we've exposed some of the devil's schemes, the lies that hide the necessity for all Christians to participate in the Great Commission. The lie that tells us that we're not evangelists, therefore someone else will do the job. The lie that tells us befriending non-Christians, you know, setting up feeding programs, holding outreach events that don't feature the giving of the gospel message or evangelism. The idea that evangelism is the winning of souls and our efforts always fail because we don't see converts. 
when we do share the gospel. You know, that, that crushing belief that we are incapable, inadequate, unqualified. No, I will not accept that the war is over for anyone who professes to love the Lord Jesus Christ. With the lies exposed, we're ready to rise again, aren't we? You know, we can take steps to get back into the fight, to rediscover or, or discover for the first time a passion for the lost, a real zeal to share the gospel, an urgency to engage in Jesus' commands because we want to lift him up, because we want to glorify him, and because the consequences for those who we fail are too terrible to contemplate. Let's not even go there. In previous teaching, we've looked at this issue of feeling inadequate. And I say it again, with millions of encounters under my belt, I still feel these same crushing doubts every time I go out to evangelise. You know, every time I take to the stage or a pulpit, or even approach an individual with the intent to share the gospel, I'm still taunted with this little voice, you know, why are you doing this? Why you? Surely there's someone else who can do a better job than you, Tony. You're not really that good. What's the point in all this anyway? Why do you need to put yourself up for rejection and ridicule? You know, when this happens, it's important to understand that feeling inadequate is a normal experience of people who are advancing spiritually. Remember, if we're in a war, our enemy's not going to let us win easily. He knows this. We know it. You know, God knows it. And he calls us to obey him, to trust him, to ground ourselves in his word and his commands so that we might be strong and overcome the attack of the enemy. You know, when Joshua faced the huge and daunting task of leading the people into the promised land, he had every reason to feel anxious and inadequate. He was, after all, taking on the mantle from God's great servant Moses. What a big deal that was. You know, much was at stake. The people of Israel had wandered for years, lost in the desert. They too were fearful and seriously doubting. They had a migrant's legacy and the promise of their own land must have seemed a dim reality, especially in view of Moses' death. Yet God knew their hearts. He recognised their anxiety and fear of the unknown and told Joshua and his fearful people not to be discouraged. Don't we read there in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the Lord depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Amen. You know, the NIV Study Bible makes insightful comments on its introduction to the book of Joshua. It draws the parallel between Joshua and Jesus and highlights that the purpose of this account is to prophetically illuminate the destiny of all people in light of God's supreme purpose. We read in Revelation 19 verses 11 to 16, War is a terrible curse that the human race brings on itself as it seeks to possess the earth by its own unrighteous ways. But it pales before the curse that awaits all those who do not heed God's testimony to himself or his warnings, those who oppose the rule of God and reject his offer of grace. The God of the second Joshua, Jesus, is the God of the first Joshua also. 
Although now for a time he reaches out to the whole world with the gospel and commissions his people urgently to carry his offer of peace to all nations. The sword of his judgment awaits in the wings and his second Joshua will wield it. So here we are again, back at the uncomfortable crux and reality of the gospel message. A reality that should spur us on in urgency to inform others of this sword of judgment. As we've already discussed, you know, there's a natural yet very worrying tendency among Christians to deliver the niceties of the Christian experience without speaking of the whole truth of sin and judgment. And I think such watering down has catastrophic consequences for the unsaved. So part of our training in how to deliver the full gospel message must include an understanding of scripture that speaks clearly of the path to salvation. You know, we previously looked at a blueprint for the words of the gospel. But now let's look in detail at the scripture from which this and similar concepts were actually devised. In doing so, we'll hopefully also address another excuse sometimes offered by Christians not to speak of the gospel, which is concerning personal doubts as to the reality of hell, you know, reality of heaven, judgment and redemption. There are many areas of scripture to draw on here, but one of the most inclusive passages where the words of the gospel can be readily identified is in John's gospel, where Jesus is teaching about the work of the coming of the Holy Spirit. John 16, verses 8 to 10. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regards to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. You see, when you ingest these words, you'll find there's a great release and freedom in this passage. It's the Holy Spirit that does the convicting, you see. That is, you don't have to do it. The Holy Spirit will do it. Did you get that? In fact, you cannot do it. Only the Holy Spirit can convict a person. So really, we must not worry about whether a person's believing or doubting. That's not in our capability. Our job is simply to deliver the message. The truth is that many people will doubt. We've all doubted. Many will reject, just as they did in the New Testament times and down the ages ever since. The apostles suffered terrible rejection and persecution, but their sights remained set on preaching the message clearly and lovingly in the best way it could be understood by their hearers. Just remember Paul's declaration to the church in Corinth. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 22. I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. My goodness, I just love those words. So challenging. It's never easy to talk to someone about sin. Though, is it? It seems such an old-fashioned concept, as we've already spoken about. You know, there's good reason for this. The devil does everything he can to shut our mouths and stop us mentioning sin. His first advice is to eliminate sin as a topic of discussion in proclamation of the gospel. And when this happens, we present a watered-down version of the gospel and begin to jeopardise the salvation of those we're trying to reach. 
F.B. Mayer hammers home this point with his emphasis on the interlink between the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and our commission to tell the whole truth about men and women in relation to God. And I quote, The weapon here is the Holy Spirit. He convicts men of the sin of refusing to believe in Jesus Christ. So we must tell the unchurched world about sin. It is a great mistake to entice sinners by describing the moral grandeur of Christ's character and teaching. We should at once seek to arouse them to a sense of their great sinfulness. When a man realises that his life is being eaten out by some insidious disease, he will need no further urging to go to a physician. This is the weakness of the modern preaching, that we expound on the value of the remedy to men who have never realised their dire necessity. Didn't F.B. Mayer hit the nail on the head? You know, non-Christians must be convicted that they are lost before they can be found. If they're not aware they're lost, they will never see a need for a saviour. How does the Holy Spirit do this? Whilst the New Testament speaks of redemption for those under the law, as though the law is an oppressively strict schoolmaster, as we read about in Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 to 7, Scripture also extols the worth of the law as a utility by which the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Don't we read in Romans 3.20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. You see, God has given the law to us for this reason. Its function was never to bestow salvation, but to convince people of their need for it. You know, as we know, nobody has ever been able to keep the law. God's perfect standard, you know, that's impossible. People can't do that because we're not God. Instead, we sinners, we we break it every day, no matter who we are or where we come from or how good a person we seem to be. Romans 3 verses 22 to 23 say there's no difference for all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And John Stott in his book, Our Guilty Silence, Church, the Gospel and the World, highlights Martin Luther's statements that it is the work of the law to terrify and the work of the gospel to justify. Such recognition led the great preacher John Wesley to assert, before I preach love, mercy and grace, I must preach sin, law and judgment. You see, friends, when I present the gospel, particularly in public meetings, I often start by getting the congregation to do a short test. It's little more than a fun icebreaker more than anything else. It also helps highlight an important point. I ask people to give themselves a score between 0 and 10 for each statement. Number one, I give to charities. Two, I pray. I help strangers in need. I read the Bible. I forgive people when they hurt me. I love and help family members. I'm loyal with my friendships. I put other people first when they need me. I'm totally honest in the things I say and do. And I see the best in people. And those who record a cumulative score between 68 and 70, then they're labelled as angelic. An achievement of between 64 and 67 makes you saintly. 35 to 63, good, and from 25 to 34, struggling, and those who manage under Omega 25 are told to seek help quickly, (laughs) and we joke about that. But I emphasize again, this is all just a bit of fun, but I then go on to say, now let me show you what Jesus would say to a good person like you, or an angelic person like you. And then the message then flows from that blueprint that we previously illustrated. That gets a person to understand that all have broken God's laws, all have lied, cheated, you know, were not forgiven, you know, held onto pride, greed, and jealousy. 
Using visuals and through the tone with which I deliver this message, I usually receive a light-hearted, humorous response. I go on to highlight the fact that even though we humans are very quick to differentiate between good and bad people, in God's eyes, there's really no difference. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We might consider ourselves fine, upstanding citizens, but by asking a series of questions, again in a light-hearted manner, I easily get people to understand that according to the biblical remit, they're really no better than lying, thieving murderers, to which there usually is a sobering chuckle, and they all laugh out loud. You know, St. Augustine said the utility of the law is that it convinces man of his weakness and compels him to apply for the medicine of grace, which is in Christ. The law was given that it might make you guilty, but make guilty might fear. Fearing might ask indulgence and not presume on your own strength. The law was given to turn a great man into a little man. St. Augustine. So you see, this modern tendency not to speak of the law is serious folly. It is well worth an extended study of Paul's teaching in Romans to understand the relationship of the law to grace and righteousness. He extols the law and stresses what we need to hear today, that really there is no excuse not to use the law or not to speak about sin and hell. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, Paul said. Romans chapter 7 verse 7. And we read in Galatians 3.24, So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And it's John Stott who has much to say on the matter, emphasising the necessity of a person coming face to face with his or her own inherent and very real selfishness. The first is through Christ himself, confronted by him and the perfection of his self-mastery and self-sacrifice. We cannot help falling down at Jesus' knees with Simon Peter and crying out, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Luke chapter 5 verse 8. Of course, John Stott goes on to remind us that another way Christ convicts sinners of their sin is through Christians. The light of God's law that shines brightest through Jesus, shining through his disciples too. And this light exposes the shame in the darkness. You know, we read in John chapter 3 verses 19 to 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. After sin has been awakened, either through the Holy Spirit and the law, or through Christ directly, or through Christian witness, the second element of the gospel to be presented is righteousness. And that's what we're going to look at in part two of this series. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.